and welcome again to another episode of FitSpeak, the Fraser Valley's fitness, wellness, and endurance sports podcast. I'm Kevin Hines. You know, I'm closer to 60 years old than 50, so I'm not really big into using these newfangled hipster words, but damn it, I'm going to use the term OG for the first time in my life to describe our next guest. Did his first triathlon back in 1982, between now and then has become a father, philanthropist, a high-level flying instructor for Canada's military, musician of sorts, uh, an Ironman, an Ultraman, an Uberman. Welcome to Fitspeak, Gerard Charlton. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for the invite. So, from from that list, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? Well, uh, I think you know, as life moves on, I'm I'm also approaching sixty, like yourself. Looking back on it, um, I'll get away from my younger years and just moving moving um, on in life and picking up some sort of philanthropy philanthropic bent to to my uh, to the events that I did that if there's if there's pride in what I've done that's that's where it truly lies right now at my stage in life and yeah I've, I've done a little bit of that and it's been spiritually uplifting on so many levels it's 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 mind-blowing to some degree getting away from trying to be uh, racing um, which I don't want to uh, belittle it there's a great place for a lot of people to set goals and racing and stuff like that but I, I personally moved beyond that and uh, it, it's all about uh, doing something and trying to create a, you know, a, a charitable side of it. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your day job right now? You're living in Vancouver, one of the more expensive places to live on the planet. Uh, how are you paying the bills? <laughs> well, I don't know how I'm paying the bills. I don't know if it's from my job. But uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a civil aviation inspector with Transport Canada. So that's my, that is my day job. And uh, so it's a bit of a mixture of all my backgrounds. I've mm-hmm. got a helicopter background, a fixed wing background. I flew in the airlines for a very, very short period of time. Um, and uh, I flew floats on the coast for, again, a bit of a short time. And um, so they, they sort of hired me as a jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> <laughs> and the emphasis on the back part, I think, mm-hmm. as much as anything. But that, that's what I do. Okay. So you're saying uh, we're roughly about the same age and folks like that, you know, us, we were we were walking the planet before this. There was a thing called triathlon. What sorts of sports did you? I know you did a lot, but what did you enjoy as a kid growing up? I was a soccer player yeah. primarily. Although although people would remember, like any of my friends would say, I was a competitive swimmer, and I did go. I went to nationals uh, as a competitive swimmer, but I was I was one of the the also rans at nationals. If I was to do really well, I might make consolation finals. I was uh-huh. as good as I was going to get. I was one of the uh, the guys that, that that worked their ass off in yeah. training and uh, and 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 did really well. Like I outperformed myself at the actual events, but I just didn't have the natural talents mm-hmm. that some of the other people had. But but my heart was always as a soccer player. I was as a youth, I was a yeah. fairly high level soccer player and played with some amazing people that that did go on and do mm-hmm. great things. Um, and uh, I just I. I toyed with it until uh, it, it didn't mix with triathlon at all in the end because my ankles got I, I ended up twisting my ankles my ankles got weak on all the lateral movements and stuff uh-huh. uh, and I tried continue to play soccer as I went into my 20s and I was in the military and uh-huh. and I kept going over on my ankle and I decided uh-huh. I just had to give it up because I, I couldn't run for like six weeks every time I went over on my ankle yeah, yeah so that that's that's truly where my heart lay yeah growing up uh, how did you first hear about triathlon uh, I think it was like on Wide World of Sports. I think I saw the very first Ironman that was done. I forget the fellow's name who, who won that. If somebody mentioned it, I'd, I'd remember it. But uh, 
I remember watching this crazy event and uh, it was just you know, me in my basement, you know, kit flicking a, a hockey ball around in our basement watching <laughs> TV on Saturday afternoons, yeah. right? And I'm watching these people doing this crazy stuff and I'm going, what the heck, you know? And and um, yeah, that, set the, that sort of set the tone. It was a, you know, I was maybe 14, 15, I don't know how old I was. And then only a few years later, you know, the idea of this triathlon mm-hmm. came up and um, it was like, oh, wow, you know, it's a thing, right? It's real. It isn't just a cut, you know, three or four freaks doing this yeah. thing in Hawaii. There's mm-hmm. there's something else to this. Yeah, and uh, and and the only reason I did the one in 1982 was um, <clears throat> I had no intention of doing it, but I had a good friend um, whose name is Dan Fisher, and uh, ironically, his son just qualified for the U.S. Uh, Olympic team in the 10,000 meters. An amazing race. If anybody wants to watch one of the greatest final uh, finishes for a 10,000 meter, yeah. watch the Olympic trials. Grant Fisher is his name. He's a uh, Sort of, uh, you know, I'll call it family friends. My, my kids are both uh, runners, too, and I think they're in contact with them. I'm not positive on that, but I'm still in contact with Dan for a while. Anyways, Dan came up to me uh, a year out of high school, and he said, Hey, um, <clears throat> my sports club up in Whistler, who's normally just into cross-country skiing, is putting on this event in Vancouver. It's called the triathlon. And I went, Oh, I'd heard of something about this. <laughs> he goes, Yeah. He says, You're a swimmer, and, and we know you can run because you played soccer. So yeah. all you got to do is learn how to ride a bike, right? And I went, and he goes, how, how tough could that be? <laughs> and I and I thought, Okay, yeah, yeah, I should try this. And I, I was just about to join the military, so I was still in long hair and, oh. you know, I I, I kind of look like a 19-year-old Scott Tinley, but, but not, near, not nearly as good looking. I didn't have a mustache, and I was a lot shorter and a lot slower, right? So it was kind of funny. That that first race was hilarious. Uh, I I didn't have a helmet. There were no, you know, you didn't, there was no bike shops around there that had bike helmets. Bike helmets weren't legal requirements back then, so I wore a hockey helmet that I borrowed off my nephew. Um and I wore uh, soccer boots for cleats in my. I, I used soccer boots in the pedals of a uh, rat trap, rat so traps, it actually yeah. could. Mm. It, yeah, it could actually hold. My, so I could actually pull on the pedals. Yeah, and it actually it actually kind of worked. And uh, you know, I did the whole thing in shorts, and I've got pictures from that way back when. And and all it is is smiles, right? Yeah, my, wow. my my wife was my girlfriend at the time. Um, she's around the course taking photos of me, and I'm just laughing and smiling nice. my whole way through. It was yeah. just like, this is great, man. Uh-huh. And, I, and I and I think I, you know, sort of, you know, it was a great introduction to the sport. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess I was kind of hooked at that point. Uh, yeah, you also have a hell of a story about uh, your in quotes first unofficial marathon. That was also in 1982. Yeah, I I, I sort of started running. You know, I just had these ideas what do you want to do when you get out of high school well, I was I was going to school and I was working and I and I was applying to the Air Force I had no idea what was going to be made in my life and I thought what do I want to do post swimming post what am I going to do athletically and I thought you know what I've always thought I should run a marathon just like those crazy guys in Hawaii were doing mm-hmm. but you know I got to learn how to do that so I on very little training I mean I probably went out 10 times um, you know just to just to do maybe 10 kilometers to see whether I could run a 10k or something like that. And I just, I slid in at the beginning of the Vancouver marathon, uh-huh. which was the old days. Yeah. I didn't have a race number or anything. I just ran along with everybody. And then when I got to the end, they wouldn't let me cross the finish line. I yeah. had no problem with that. I just, yeah. I said, fine, you know, I just, I just finished a, a marathon and <laughs> I, had, I had people, people out there cheering me on and laugh, laughing at me more than anything. Yeah. And then, you know, and I basically kind of finished it, but I, I wasn't in great shape. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I was 19 years old, uh, you know, very little training and it was just a crazy thing to try and do. But, yeah, so so were you running in North Stars or were those Cougar running shoes? 
Well, I'll tell you, for anybody that's old enough to remember these, um, for years I wore what was called Adidas Marathon Trainers. Yeah. And uh, they discontinued making those because they were so robust, they never died. Mm -hmm. I had those shoes for like about 20 years afterwards as my, you know, my go-to slippers yeah, for working around. Yeah, are massive. Yeah. Well, they just, they just, they were made of pure carbon. They never <laughs> wore out, right? So, so. So Adidas never, people didn't have to buy new yeah. shoes. So, so I think they discontinued it for, for that reason alone. So were yeah. you able to pick up any aid along the course, like water or this was way before yeah. gels? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, you know, for the most part, there's no question. And then there was one or two aid stations. I remember a couple of people saying, hey, are, are you even in the race? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, and we'd have this little conversation. They go, okay, well, we'll give you some water because we feel sorry for you, but you really shouldn't be here. Yeah. And this, and you couldn't do that in this day and age. I mean, no. everything's so much more, you know, properly set up. This was early days, right? Yeah. So I was just, I just decided. I didn't. I wasn't actually trying to do anything illegal or wrong. I just thought eh, I'm just going to run the marathon with everyone else. Uh -huh. I'll just. I don't have money to enter it, and I didn't really do the training, so I'm just going to hop in there and, yeah. and do the distance, right? Mm. And then, of course, yeah, you're going along thinking, yeah, I want water. I had I had some family or friends that were along the course that had water bottles, just because oh, okay. I, you know, I, I thought of that, and mm. and they were out there just laughing at me. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, what are you doing? And you know. Yeah, so whatever. Yeah. And you had nothing to prove, and you went out and just did it for the hell of it. Then, uh, back in the day, it was called the Canadian Ultra Distance Triathlon. That caught your interest while you were probably yeah. listening to Panama by Van Halen in 1984. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah pretty much. I guess. Yeah, uh, the early, early, early 80s, yeah. Um, it was later renamed Ironman Canada. Who or what thing do you credit for getting involved in that race, making the transition? Uh, you know, I don't know. It was just a confluence of anything. The actual first acknowledgement that there was a race up in Penticton was actually, uh, I went to Mountain Equipment Co-op in Vancouver back when it was a single office place. It was down on 4th and U, I think, and it wasn't this big conglomerate. It was one, yeah. one little shop. And I remember seeing a guy that had this shirt, so he would have been in the 1983 race. And, um, and he had this finisher shirt, and I remember wow. looking at it going, oh. I said, oh. Oh, there's, there's actually a thing there, and where is it? It's in Penticton. So it had all this writing on it. I went, oh, Penticton. And that was probably 83, 84. And um, I had just finished my military training, so I was at Mount Equipment Co-op getting a, uh, a sleeping bag of my own, so I wasn't using family stuff anymore. <laughs> I, was, I was moving out. I was on my own now, right? Yeah. So I thought I'd buy my own equipment and stuff. And and then uh, and I'd finished my training, and I was now you know, do, you know know doing a job. I had a job. And I thought, well, I've got to keep doing some stuff. And then, yeah, I just uh, I, I inquired about this this Canadian International Ultra Triathlon, which was basically the Ironman. Yeah. And um and uh, and I applied to do it. And yeah, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> it, was, it was just like, yeah, this is like a big challenge. I got to try this. Hmm. And yeah, it just went from there. Right? So you, you wound up doing pretty darn well. What was it? Top top ten overall in your first one. Yeah, I think I came in sixth. I'm not okay. sure. I uh, can't, can't remember. I'm pretty sure I, I was either first or second Canadian, and I was, uh, yes, I think sixth. I, Steve King actually just played a, a videotape of it uh, not long ago on social media, yeah. and it was a real it was a real blast <laughs> from the past looking at that. Um, there's a couple shots of me, but what it, what it really was, there were some shots of some other people that I remember from the race, oh, yeah. and it's hilarious, and the memories were hilarious. Um, because they really, truly were early days. People got out of the water and they went into a hot tub yeah. and sat there for mm -hmm. half an hour warming up and stuff. And it was, it was like, we were, we were adventurers, yeah, right? Yeah. We were like, 
kind of out there. There's only 120 people, 128 or 120 or something like that, that, that did the race that year. And, and of course, in 1984 and 83, there was even less. But so that was 85. And I, I felt like I was a pioneer. Yeah, you were. Bit. Yeah. Um, we, we, we all rented wetsuits. Like nobody owned their own wetsuit. So you'd go off and, and find a windsurf shop and get, get one. And just about everybody came out of the water with massive neck rashes, oh, you God, know, because yeah. they didn't have a properly fitted wetsuit. It'd be a farmer, John, that had a, that had a Velcro strap right on the side of your neck. And so that'd be rubbing on your neck. And yeah. stuff. It, was, it was actually quite funny, really. Yeah. Then, then we discovered things like legitimate wetsuits and like half a pound of Vaseline on our necks because they were like, my, <laughs> I, I'm still scarred from that stuff, man. That was, that was painful, but it was all part of the, part of the experience. So you got pretty good at this, but um, just looking back, I mean, even back then when Dave Scott was winning the Ironman, you know, what did he take home? A t-shirt. Was there any sort of, you know, financial reward, whether it was cash, prizes, uh, offers of sponsorship at that time? Yeah, no, no, not at all, really. <laughs> um, and my primary reason for that was I, I was firmly committed to being a, an officer in the in the uh, military. And um, I did not believe that I had any right to, to be doing things on a professional level as a sports person. I was also very committed to the idea of amateur athletics, um, you know, from the Olympic standpoint, that yeah. back then, if you got paid for doing anything, right. Your, your rights to be to compete at, um, in an amateur status had been had been breached. But that, that was just my philosophy back then. And uh, I did actually have the opportunity to race professionally a, a few times. I was invited to, um, and uh, I remember doing the Kelowna Apple Triathlon in 1987. Most of uh, most of my my co um, competitors, if you want, people that I was really good friends with, yeah. uh, uh, Steve Wallach, Rock Frey from uh, Stony Plains, who's you know his wife Heather Fuhr ended up going on to you know world dominance really. Um, a bunch of people um, and some local Vancouver people, Simon Cassidy and a bunch of people wanted to race professionally against the likes of Scott Molina and Scott Tinley and everything. Yeah. And um, I chose to go the, the amateur route there that year. And um, and they all got to race against the big wigs and, um, and, and I chose not to. And I ended up winning the amateur division, uh -huh. which was kind of funny. <laughs> and, and, and I ended up winning a lot more than any of them did. I got a, I got a mountain bike out of it. I wow. got some Oakley sunglasses. I got, uh, I got a trip, I got a trip down to San Francisco paid. Like I got a, a flight tickets to, to go to San Francisco and it was pretty crazy, but there was no cash. I just ah. got all these prizes. Yeah. And it was one of, the, one of the biggest wins I've ever gotten. A, a, a yeah. massive payday. <laughs> yeah, it was. And, uh, yeah. Anyways, no, I, I I could see why the other people wanted to race against the the big you know the big wigs. I yeah. never I never did that. My, my what I ended up often doing was and 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 that same race and to this day was one of the most memorable um, times in triathlon was I got off the bike. I caught all the professional women because I was an amateur. I caught up the five or ten minutes back we were, and uh, and I caught up to it was I think it was Sylvia Puntas. It was oh, one yeah, of the yeah. two twins. Yeah. And she and I got off the bike together. And we ran step for step the exact pace Whoa. together for the whole. Like we were like marching together. We yeah. ran the whole way step for step, never broke stride. And I kept, I was pushing her like she was mm -hmm. trying to catch up to yeah. uh, awesome triathlete in her, in her own right from Kelowna. There, Joanne Ritchie. Oh, Ritchie. Um, and uh, and so I was just running with Sylvia trying to push mm -hmm. her along, and we 
go to water stations, I'd be the gracious gentleman, let ah. her go ahead of me for the water. And then I'd grab my water and I'd pull up beside her again and we'd run. <laughs> and uh, when we crossed the finish line, it was just all, it was just like, wow, I just raced with one of the best yeah. female runners in the sport there. Mm-hmm. It was cool. Ah. Yeah, great memory. So not only were you, you know, having a very successful career as a capital A amateur triathlete, you also had, you know, I wouldn't even call it a, a job. It was a, an amazing career. You went on to do some stuff like training others to fly aircraft, uh, teaching instructors how to become uh, aspiring pilots. How does a guy get a job like that? Well, it's not a job. Yeah, it's <laughs> a bit of a bit, bit of a, um, I guess career yeah a calling i guess uh, to some degree um yeah that i mean some of it just fell into place naturally uh to some degree um i was very very fortunate to get through pilot training in the military i mean i had my i had my troubles at times and i i ended up passing i, I would say you know if anybody watched what is it officer and a gentleman was, it, was that the movie was called um you know, there was a little little bit of that it was yeah. it was going on there you know just the you know getting through your trials and tribulations to make it to, you know, all I can, looking back on it, it was just all natural and a re- regular progression back then. But really in the end, what it's created was I've got this, this group of ex colleagues from my air force days that are some of the most amazing people I ever worked with. We trusted it with, you know, we trusted each other with our lives mm. sometimes on a daily basis. Yeah. I did do a peacekeeping mission over in the, in the Sinai with a great group of helicopter pilots at Edmonton. I was seconded to their unit and then I spent a uh, uh, peacekeeping tour in Egypt flying uh, twin Hueys around there. And, um, just some amazing people I got to work with. And I, and I, and that was my first real breakout to see what the world was yeah. like and, and what other people in the world were like. And we got to, you know, mix with Egyptians and people from Israel and stuff like that. Uh, both the, both, you know, a lot of Arab Israeli people too. And, and come to the realization that we're all the same. Yeah, we exactly. we all all people around the world that you know ninety five percent of us all want the same thing. We just want to be safe and yeah. secure and allow our children to grow up and stuff. And I, I went into places I wasn't supposed to go Ooh. just because I'd meet somebody yeah. and and they'd say, hey, you, got, you you must come and see my family, the most hospitable people in the world, yeah. right? And I would go meet some people in East Jerusalem. I'd meet every part of their family, their cousins, their wow. you know whatever. And uncles and stuff, and they would all come out because we were like this, you know, this white these people that, yeah. that they hadn't met before, peacekeepers, and and we were just in shorts and t-shirts on our weekend off, and and um, you, you quickly come to realize, wow, these are just beautiful people, and just by circumstance in the world, uh, they are in a bad position, and we won the lottery, you know, totally, being born yeah. in Canada, mm-hmm. right? and that's it. That was it. And then, you know, you realize that there's only a few very, very small percentage of people out there that really create the problems. Yeah. Because the vast majority of these people are really, really, truly good humans. Right. I mean, hell, I work in a prison and, you know, I mean, those folks are there for a reason. But even amongst those, those folks, you've got great people and, you know, people have screwed up at some point in their life and they're trying to put their life back on track. Got like you're saying, I mean, you know, we're so fortunate to be in a situation, number one, living in Canada, and number two, having the opportunities to to, to capitalize on uh, what we've been given here and, you know, hopefully at some point in our uh, careers or our lives to to give back not only to our local community, but to, to something on a, on a larger scale. Since you're my only person to have been in both positions uh training for a fighter pilot or training for iron man what's tougher 
<laughs> okay, first off, just gotta gotta qualify that. Yes, I, I never actually did train as a fighter pilot. Um, I trained uh, people in basic fighter lead-in training to 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 a smaller degree, um, and I actually was posted to fighters, but they had to take the posting away from me uh, just due to circumstances in the military. Uh, the Manning uh, they closed bases in Germany and we all of a sudden had too many fighter pilots and so myself and another fella who had mm. worked the hard way to try and make it to fighters, we'd both been flying helicopters and had gone the long route to get on them, um, both lost that posting. So basically, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd have to frame the question as, you know, training to be a pilot and I don't want to say being a fighter pilot is any different than being any other pilot in the military. They're all different, right? Mm. Um, so you can be a transport pilot or a helicopter pilot of some sorts and they all have their challenges and, and I know a lot of it, the, the fighter pilot's a bit of a glorious thing for a lot of wow. people, but top and, gun, you know, top there, gun, you know. <laughs> there, well, there's some truth. There's some yeah. truth to it too. Usually, the the usually the top candidates and courses do end up going fighters. So mm-hmm. there, there's some truth to that. Um, but there's also people like myself who go the long route and fight our way back in to to try and get into fighters. And and I would say that uh, between that and training for Ironman triathlon, uh, one one is a choice and one is a career, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they both have their challenges, and they're both, I, th- I would say, similar uh, mentalities to try and achieve high results, right? You got to set a goal, um, you got to set out a plan, um, and you got to execute that plan to some degree. You're going to have setbacks, you know that. That's part of the part of the game plan, and you got to learn from those setbacks. And I mean, that's part of life, right? Is um, none of us, none of us. Well, maybe there are some people that have done nothing but succeed, well, but, but those, in fact, those the best are learn- boring. Yeah. Well, I've always said that the, the greatest learning you get is out of failure. Oh, yeah. For sure. You know, if you don't fail, you're never really, truly going to learn very much. And uh, so, yeah, there you go. That's uh, So I'd, I'd say they're, they're roughly equivalent in, in many ways. But the big difference is, you know, one is completely of your own doing. It's a choice. You just want to do it. Uh, not many people are forced to be triathletes or Ironman. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> Yeah, and then the other one is a career and and uh, you know and a, a calling or whatever, and you don't want to fail at that. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you have failure, you want to correct it right away. Yeah. Right? So you had great success at the Ironman distance, but then that kind of lost its luster for you, and you decided to kick it up a notch. What was your motivation to do the Ultraman? Manyfold, and I'll try and be as brief as as I can. We um. So I, I when I finished my last. Ironman competitively anyways in 1994 and I did very very well in that race um I finished and I realized that there's got to be more to my life I I mean I had a lot going but my wife and I for several years have been trying to have children and and it wasn't working uh very well we were we were fighting our way through some some medical issues Mm. and um and I really wanted to concentrate on on that. Yeah. And then we also made the choice to leave the military um, sometime during that year. And part of it was just I had sort of an epiphany that that there's got to be something more to doing all this than chasing my best time, training for a whole year like a crazy man, and mm. just trying to better my time by five or ten minutes yeah. or get a better placing at something. And I'm not trying to belittle the people that do that. It's a great thing to do. But for me, I'd done it for ten years, and it was time to find something new. And the, the something new really was my wife and I were missing. We wanted to have kids, and, yeah. and that we were ble- we were blessed with that. And in that next year, yeah. in fact, it was like a month or two later, we got the news that she was pregnant. It was like, oh my god, we, we were almost we were just about to uh, sign adoption papers. Wow. We basically given up that we weren't, and so we were going to adopt instead. 
Yeah, so I ended up heading off to, to Saudi Arabia for a job there. Um, I got out of the military, and, and uh, basically I told my wife that I was going to dedicate all the energies that I did in triathlon to being a good father and mm-hmm. raise my kid or kids in the best way I could. And and then while I was in Saudi, um, I, I was in contact with people like Steve King and uh, some of my old uh, mates from the past, and one of them is a fellow named Tony O'Keefe, who some people may have heard of, maybe not, um, but uh, in years gone by, and he's still an amazing athlete, comes top in, in any age group thing that he does. So the 70.3s, the Ironman and stuff, he'll be right at the very top of his age group. And he's probably 60 now, and he's still turning He's still turning 9.30 to 10-hour yeah. Ironmans as a 60-year-old. He's pretty amazing. Um, anyways, he had, before I'd left, he was still sort of a, I wouldn't say a struggling, he was still trying to find his foothold as an Ironman. He would, mm-hmm. he would, some of us were sub 10 hour racers and Tony was always coming in just above 10 hours. And yeah. then, and then I think he found his niche in ultra distance stuff. He was better at going long and slow, well, slower, slower uh, you know, to some yeah. degree. Yeah. But he did some amazing things. Steve King told me, hey, did you know what Tony O'Keefe's doing? And I hadn't mm. heard because I was in Saudi Arabia. I just hadn't heard what was going on. And I find out that he had done the race across America. He had done, uh, he'd come in second place at the uh, Ultraman World Championships in uh, Hawaii a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, holy smokes. Yeah. And so I've got to get a hold of Tony yeah. now. Um, yeah, so... So that just piqued my interest. And, and then Steve King, I must admit, in co- talking with me, he said, you know, Gerard, I know what you, you know, what, the way you think, what you want to do. I know your drives and motivation and that Iron Man has maybe gotten kind of too big and corporate for you. And that, that, that was a true statement. It, it had kind of gotten beyond the roots side. And he said, Ultraman mm. is back to those roots that you yeah. remember, the, you know, your pioneering kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he, I must admit, between he and Tony O'Keefe, the two of them sort of convinced me, this is your, this is your other thing to do. And all I needed to do was tie it into some charity, and that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I we uh, when we came back to Canada from Saudi, um, I was trying to find my, you know, exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I didn't want to join the airlines as a pilot; just I want to be around my family, and mm-hmm. I, I wanted. So um, in that year, I arranged that I was going to do some philanthropic stuff with uh, Covenant House was the main one because of the children on the, the street youth that I'd seen. Right. That, that had changed massively. I hadn't been to Vancouver in 10 or 15 years other than just for a brief holiday. But mm-hmm. living here, I started to see yeah. the, the massive changes that were happening. And, and I had been connected with Covenant House through friends that were <clears throat> policemen or or that were, you know, social working and stuff and, and all the great work that they do and they still do. And it's an amazing uh, organization. I, I'd love to support them. Union Gospel Mission, downtown Eastside, right, and yeah. also uh, an organization that's now uh, gone. But uh, the Franciscan Sisters of the Atonement used to be a, a long-term um, um, uh, entity down in the downtown Eastside that did a lot of good uh, for people. So those were the two major um groups that that i did this event supporting and it was uh, it was uh you know i don't mean to get all religious on anybody at all uh, i'll get spiritual this was one of the most spiritually uplifting things i'd done in my life at that point probably still remains to be i, I trained for the ultraman yeah. but i basically spent most of my energies on i want to do this for these people and these things and i want to bring attention to you know what's going on in vancouver and it was just uh you know, even even today, I can I can get a little choked up on the way I felt when I when I finished the event, and I felt like I, you know, set a goal for mm-hmm. that year, 
it came completely through to fruition in spades. I had friends and stuff that had gathered around to help support the cause and stuff. Uh, a wonderful lady named Jackie Byrne um, helped oh, uh, yeah. sort of do the publicity because I don't like I don't like the publicity side. I, I don't want to get involved with that. If, if you know, I just want to do it. Yeah. And of course, trying to make money and and bring attention to things, you got to have the publicity or you don't get that. So I, I I always just ask somebody to do that for me. I don't want to get involved. Um, and Jackie, a wonderful, beautiful lady, um, mother of Gordo Byrne, right. for those that, that don't know. Top two at uh, Iron Man. Yeah, Gordo top, and he was also a top Ultraman too, and a friend, right. great friend of Tony, O'Ke- great friend of Tony O'Keefe's as well. And Jackie heard what I was doing, and she took a, she was a writer, and um, and uh, God bless her. Um, she she passed away about a year ago, and uh, just a wonderful lady, and we kept in touch for many years. Um, but she she wrote articles on me and what I was trying to do back in 2005 and uh, and yeah, it was just a great it was a great story I met a lot of great people that, that really had beautiful hearts and um, and uh, yeah yeah uh, my story not quite the same in fact I mean to, to be able to to do an Ultraman not only is there the training but of course as you know um, your crew and the logistical support and the people around you is such a uh, such a big thing and I kind of uh, burned a few bridges in my Ultraman attempt in fact my wife who who thankfully is still with me has renamed that race to uh, the ultra selfish person uh, because I was doing it for myself and when things went to shit it got ugly because perhaps I didn't have a you know a, a bigger cause to to do this for so you know to your credit Gerard I mean hitching your wagon to something bigger than yourself and when you're struggling through the run or whatever happens in that three-day event uh, knowing that you're doing it for uh, a bigger cause is probably going to make the lows a lot more manageable than if it's all about freaking you so you know good on you well. Yeah, I've always said in the early days, I remember people saying about triathlon and Ironman, oh, it's so unselfish and everything. I used to laugh at people going, no, it's one of the most selfish pursuits you've got. Oh, yeah. But as long as you as long as you got the right attitude, <laughs> you know, and, and you don't drag everybody down. And yes, uh, you would be you would not be the first person that ever had a problem in a big event like yeah. that, because you do you do you do end up in some pretty deep, dark corners when you're doing some of that ultra stuff. And you and it's it's hard to to continue graciousness at mm. times no, it and the funny wrong. thing was yeah. the funny thing was my crew for that event was my uh, my 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 dad elderly dad and my <laughs> nephew and then my wife and the two so the, back then they didn't have rules about only one car so we had basically two cars going around the course but my my seven and ten year old kid were handing me water bottles and, ah. and uh, there was no science involved with this it was just Here's dad. This is stuff that dad used to do before you guys were born. And, and he gets and he gets to go. And for me, I, I took it as being this is the greatest thing I ever had because my family allowed me to go out training for three days straight. It was just wonderful. No, I didn't have anybody complaining. They were supporting me. Nah. And, it, you know, and it wasn't a selfless pursuit for those three days. <laughs> and it was yeah, it was great. It still remains. It's one of those. Hey, I think I duped them all. You know, <laughs> you guys are coming out not not complaining. You're actually supporting me for three days. This is awesome. Yeah. You know, we we had dogs and stuff oh, wow. like that at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was a, it was a, it's like a little family train that went around. It was <laughs> fun. Yeah. yeah. And the people and the people honestly the people that were involved with that yes. the people that yes. ran it mm-hmm. Steve Brown yeah. and um, and Neil McDonald and and then there was also. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the beautiful ladies from uh, Hawaii that, that came out, Jane and Cheryl and David Cobb, they were some really nice people that, that you know, that, that created an event that allowed us mm-hmm. to climb that mountain that we needed, right? Without that event, yeah. none of us would have had that challenge. Yeah. And it was beautiful meeting them. And then some of the other, uh, some of the people that were in the event, uh, yeah. many yeah. of them have, have kept in huge contact with over the years. There's some fairly prolific people that are out there and, and you know, in Facebook land or in mm. social media, whatever. Um, Giorgio Lisi, an Italian who's mm. done some amazing stuff. Nick Mallet, who's a fairly right, vocal, yes. uh, <laughs> fairly uh, vocal guy from Australia. Yeah, it's yeah. good. You know, Nick and I, Nick and I bug each other a lot <laughs> still, but we're great friends. So those are two. Um, there is a fellow named Corey Folk, who's a doctor, um, who is uh, you know a connection to Hawaii. He, he's based in Hawaii, and he was part of that course and. He and I spent uh, the second day on the bike ride. Spent about an hour together, just cycling yeah. together and just trading jokes, ah. <laughs> just just talking about life and Iron Man and stuff. Yeah. And he was a great, great guy. I, I sort of kept in touch with him a little bit, mm. but yeah. Anyways, just it made it, it was like again back to the pioneer days where you get mm. to meet all these personalities and some of the crews, the families yeah. and stuff. Oh uh, yeah, it was, that's... it was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great getting to meet all these people. Yeah, my my wife said uh, the highlights of the weekend at the ultra selfish person were not helping me. It was helping the other people who truly appreciated the the singing that my wife did for them, uh, whether it was the chocolate chip cookies or, or whatever. So you know we uh, you know even though I might have been a bit of a sour lemon, it was you know as far as other people on uh, my crew were concerned, uh, a, a pretty positive thing. So you know thousands of people I know you know Iron Man's been around for what 40 50 years now thousands have done an Iron Man hundreds have done an Ultraman maybe a handful have done an Uberman or should I say the Uberman you have um, start things off tell us the distances of that event the Uberman okay um, I, the distances are kind of um, <clears throat> I, guess, I guess it's probably easier for most people to put it in a, into a visual so um, I got to swim. So in this case, it was something I'd always dreamed of doing as a as a massive challenge. Um, if people have heard of the Badwater Marathon in Death Valley, um, that was part of it. Uh, the Catalina Channel swim from Catalina Island to LA, that was part of it. And then you bridge the swim and the run with a bike mm-hmm. ride from Palo Verde. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it, Palos Verde, Palo Verde, um, the LA into Badwater to, to Death Valley. Um, so it was a 34 kilometer swim followed by a 600 and some odd kilometer bike ride and then a 217 kilometer run um, to Mount Whitney Portal, which was, um, again, a sort of a spiritual thing. Again, I did that for charity. I did it for Connect Place mm-hmm. uh, uh, Children's Hospice in Vancouver and met some great people, some very tragic, sad stories. Um, but you see um, humanity at its very, very best when you're dealing with some of this stuff. This stuff, and um, yeah, so we we went down there and did that, and it was uh, you know it was again it wasn't a race. Um, right. Yeah. I, I uh, it was uh, Giorgio Alisi was the first guy to do it, and and I remember seeing the event. Uh, just somebody had put the challenge up there, and nobody had done it yet. And I, I remember reading, I like, going. <laughs> Who the hell would do this? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm looking at it going, that sounds really cool. Who the <laughs> hell would do it? Like, I, I would love to do it, but I, I don't know if I can. Yeah. Well, that makes it interesting. Yeah. And then there was an outside magazine um, 
um, thing that came out. It was a expose on on the Uberman, and they and Giorgio Elisi did it on his own the first year, and it was just like I know that guy. Mm. I do. <laughs> I got to give Giorgio a call. Like what the hell? And I think <laughs> he'd done some other. I know, and he'd had some other crazy pursuits, and he's done a lot of stuff. Um, he's not, you know, he's, he's self admittedly he's probably not the fastest guy around, but he he just goes forever, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and he he's uh, you know, when I say he's not the fastest guy, none of us are anymore. We're <laughs> not any younger, right? But he's got a great attitude. Like he just he just loves being out there and doing stuff. And so he talked with me, and he said, "Gerard, this is doable." Um, he explained what he had done, and he mm-hmm. had done the whole thing with his girlfriend or wife. I'm not too sure if it's his wife or girlfriend, but it doesn't really matter. His partner. Yep. She. Yeah. She. And so part of the logistics of it was how do you do this logistically? And and he said, "Well, we did it in the daytime only mm-hmm. because I didn't want my wife out there or my yeah. my partner." He said, "I didn't want my partner out there at night supporting me." There's dangers out there and stuff. And I go, true enough, good mm-hmm. enough. So they did it with a car. Uh, I mean, the boating part was another thing. I, it's too complicated to get into. But basically, she was. they had one person sailing a boat, and Giorgio swam behind the boat, and, and he had his uh, partner on board there too. Um, but but I did a similar thing. I, I, I didn't want to make it. It's already a fairly expensive venture to do, and I was doing this for charity. Right. I could have just tossed all the money. I could have just tossed all the money that um, that I was taking to do this and given it to charity instead, but I thought I'd sort of, you know, double down on it a bit. And um, <clears throat> um, basically had my wife as the main supporter. Um, we had some other um, members of my wife's family, um, sisters-in-law, um, that joined us at various sort of stages along the way. One was uh, sort of dedicated as well. Uh, the swimming group was bigger. We had a boat and we had number number of people again for safety reasons because we swam through the night and i didn't want people nodding i didn't want it to be a horrible experience for those people so uh-huh. I, I invited some old friends along i said hey man you, you get a free ride out to catalina <laughs> free back. and and most of them seemed to have a really good experience because yeah. uh, it was it was quite a uh, quite a difficult swim for me because i get leg cramps when i swim long i always have and um and i was you know all the way through it took me what what should have been a ten to twelve hour swim, yeah. which is about the speed that I would normally swim, it took sixteen hours. Wow! Because I kept cramping up in the water, ah, yeah, yeah. and in the middle of the night, I was violently ill too. Oh. I spent four hours just puking my guts out in the water oh, because man. you know I trained I trained in Vancouver in the ocean, but it wasn't the same as being out in the open water there, I guess. And I got vertigo. Um, wow. I think is what happened. It was in the middle of the night, you know, and and I was just my I'd be fine when I was swimming, but the moment I stopped. I would get vertigo oh. in the waves and, and with single light source going on and stuff. I uh, And then my, my whole brain, just it was just like doing aerobatics and flying oh. you know, too much when you haven't done them. I would just be honking my guts. Oh. So everybody on the boat, everybody on the boat's listening to this and they're looking at me going, well, what are you going to do? And I go, what am I going to do? I'm just going to keep swimming, man. I, I can't stop now. I'm, I mean, we're here. Let's go. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it took me 16 hours, way longer than it should have. Wow. But it didn't matter. And then and then we did the same thing as Giorgio. We didn't go through that. So it was an ultra event, but we didn't go through the night like some people have done since. Mm. We we only did daytime stuff. Uh, we touched on night. Like I'd finish the day, you know, late. Sometimes I finished just as it was getting dark out just to get to my next point where we were going to crash for the night or uh-huh. something like that. And uh, so I only really I only really was on the road for about 12 hours a day. I would sleep an eight-hour night, okay. um, and I would, you know, have four hours of, of sitting down with everybody. We'd all have a meal together and and stuff like that at the end of the day. Take pictures, you know, laugh a little bit. I'd have a shower, mm-hmm. and then I'd go to bed. And 
eight hours later and get up and start it all over again. It was it was a blast for me. It was it was the epitome of perfect. Wow. You know, it was, it was hard on hard on the wife for sure. She had a dog with her and uh, oh. traveling in a motor, driving a motor home, and yeah. hard on the others at times. But yeah, anyways, it's fun. Talk 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 to me about food. I mean, having done a, an ultra selfish man, I'm there. It's part of my lexicon now. But uh, after after your bike ride or during your bike ride there, what sorts of foods were appealing to you at that time? Because that's that always makes for interesting listening. Okay, so uh, you know, people that are in a triathlon or or um, you know Ironman events, it's a different food source. Um, you got to get into any kind of ultra running, I would say, and talk to them about sort of the stuff you got to do when you're doing it day over day in day out yeah. for several days and going long distances where you're basically on the road all day long. There's a lot of uh, I believe in real foods. It's just a personal thing. Um, I don't believe in processed foods um, to help you out. So I, I, you know, some people do a power bar or a cliff bar yeah. or, a, or something like that. I can't stomach those things at all. Okay. I need natural mm. food. So avocados. Ah, awesome. really? Hey, you know, wow. Yeah, like I want to have fat. Like mm, when you're yeah. doing that kind of thing, I, I want fluids and I need fat. Yeah. But I, I, I'll have other things too. Like I remember getting to the the base of one of the mountains. I had to run over in Death Valley there. And we'd had some hamburgers the night before, and, uh-huh. and I was—I I just ran basically a marathon in the morning, and I had another marathon to go up and over this mountain, a five thousand foot climb I had to do. So I was looking at this mountain, and I—I I just looked at my wife and I said, uh, "What's it? What's in the trailer? Like, what's in the uh, motorhome there? Like, uh-huh. anything left over from last night?" She goes, "Yeah, there's a hamburger and fries in there." Yeah, and I went, "Give me five minutes," <laughs> and I went inside and I just hammered this hamburger down uh-huh. and a bunch of fries and stuff. And I said, that, "That's when I, I needed a lump in my stomach." Uh-huh. And some people would say, "Why would you do that?" Well, I don't know what it was, but at that moment in time, I needed that. Hmm. I need uh, there was just something missing in there. So you know, fluids. Whatever. So for me, it's not a science in that end. Maybe for some people it is. Yeah. Um, but I know from my, you know, any kind of ultra stuff I've done, um, I tend to um, go to basically the avocados, the the dates, the, you know, mm. there, there's lots of good natural foods that, that you can get both sugars and you can get fats and stuff. And in the end, a long ultra thing, mm-hmm. you need fat, man. Yeah. Um, I believe, and but I want to have a good fat, and avocados are the perfect one. Like I really, truly, I, I came to love those things, and and I have a hard time eating it just straight. But uh, but guacamole is oh, one of my yeah. favorite foods. So yes. you make some guacamole, I can eat that with anything. Yeah, right? I'll that's... just I'll just devour it, and it's like the perfect food. That and potatoes and mm. stuff like. You know, not French fries, but like uh, baked potatoes yeah. with guacamole. I think oh. I could go forever. On yeah, that stuff. I could go to the moon, moon and back on that stuff, right? So, that, anyways, that's that's my food. Thing. Uh, we're gonna have to talk about marketing rights to that. When I was doing the ultra, I actually in in the pool as well. I was training using pierogies and i also used pizza and come race days that's what especially on the the run and the bike that's obviously not in the water for the swim that was uh liquid uh nutrition but yeah pierogies and pizza not the cleanest sources of energy but uh you know it did the job and when you're running or cycling at that heart rate which is pretty darn low it does enable the gut to digest and do all those good things, which, you know, for yourself, who had a pretty high Ironman heart rate, you were saying like 155, that, that might not be the trick for an Ironman, but for the slower, you know, heart rate of, a, of an ultra, it, it worked for you. 
Yeah, yeah, that boiled eggs was another one. You know, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm not a vegetarian. Sorry, I, I, I toyed with it a little bit, yeah. and I, and I could. And, and one day, and I, I have that consciousness that maybe I should be. But uh, yeah, boiled eggs was another one because I, I need my protein too. So yeah. I know that there's other protein sources, but I've always found boiled eggs work really great. Mm. And um, yeah, you know that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and and you definitely wouldn't be you know, dropping this stuff down when you're doing an, uh, an Ironman. Yes. Uh, maybe, maybe some people do, but yeah. it's kind of hard to get some of those food sources yeah. uh, uh, in an Ironman. And, and really you're, you're just, it's a one day event and you, you know, you, you get to recover for a week after it or something like that. So yeah. with it, whereas with an ultra, you got to keep in mind that you, you got to keep going, you yeah. know, the next day you got to wake up and do it again. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I got a question here from my brother. Um, during your Uberman event, were there any times where you just wanted to say, screw it, I'm getting in the van and getting a ride back home? Absolutely not. Not? I was, uh, I was in seventh heaven the whole yeah? time, man. Wow. There's pictures pictures of me going along. Mm -hmm. I got the biggest, yeah. you know, I, I hate to use the word, but, you know, I had the biggest shitty <laughs> grin on my face most of the time because, once again, it was like, I'm getting to do this. Yeah, like, yeah. people are supporting me. I'm just like, wow, this is awesome, man. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, the closest you would have got to me being like that was was doing the Death Valley run. You know, it was so I was going during the day. Which I had a plan of maybe trying to run in the night. Uh -huh. And in the end, I realized that wasn't going to work with my supporters. You know, okay. I got my yeah. wife and, mm -hmm. and, and her sisters were kind of, like I said, in and out of the picture a bit. Uh, they weren't actually there full time, but they were definitely there supporting me. Mm -hmm. um, didn't feel like it dragged them through yeah. supporting me all night long. Uh, my initial plan was I was going to run Death Valley in the night and then just have a break during the hot middle of the day mm -hmm. and sleep that off and then and then run the nights. And I quickly realized, and in fact, the guy that organized the whole event, Dan Burku, great guy, um, super, super guy, he, uh, he suggested to me when I finished the swim, he says, why race this? Like, why? Why, why put yourself you know, in that position? You've got a wife, your yeah. sister-in-laws and stuff. Just just." Just take it all in, enjoy mm. it, do it during the day, and I did. And yeah. we, mm. you know, the sights and and the sights in Death Valley are amazing, yeah. right? And uh, so, so yeah, and, uh, there was one, you know, time when I was pretty beaten up. I did my last big climb before Mount Whitney, so second last day, I think. Going up the hill there, it was there was not a level piece of road on mm. it. It was all twisty, windy roads with pretty heavy gradients, and my old body, my knees <laughs> were getting beat. Yeah. My my hips because there's just constantly running on a grade and you're in traffic too and and uh, i remember getting to the top of that hill there and then we're just getting beaten by the desert winds up in uh, oh, i forget wow. what they call that it's a it's a great and and the and the funny thing ironic thing was somebody i don't know who it was but one of my ex-military buddies uh -huh. had passed along to the american military i got several i mean you're in a valley that fighter pilots go blown through all the time anyways uh -huh. but they were tracking me they were tracking my really? spot tracker whoa and i had several f-18s come by and uh -huh. wing rock for me which um yeah i don't know if anybody understands this but that's one of the highest salutes you can get oh, as really? a military person a wing yeah. Rock so, so yeah they just came by and they and they dipped their wings at me okay. as they went by so these guys would fly down i forget what it's called it's a valley in, in just north of chino lake i think it's part of their part of their um fighter pilot training centers and stuff okay yeah and um and the valley's got a rainbow valley or something i can't remember but it's it's a beautiful beautiful valley in death valley these guys were tipping in on me like i was like i was a, a target they wow. were coming in and they would point the nose down at me oh. and they'd pull up and wing rock as they went past whoa <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh 
it was very, very moving, yeah. actually, yeah. That to know that 25 years after I'd left the military, yeah. somebody out there was playing a game with me. Yeah, you know? yeah. It, it actually choked me up. It's a little bit choking me up right now because yeah. I was thinking, because there was a couple of people that were ex-military, they were involved with planning this whole thing, and I figured they were up to something, and they ah. never admitted to it. Mm-hmm. And they and I don't think they would even if they had, yeah. but it was pretty cool, man. Yeah. I just... Uh, and, and it was always a big surprise because you'd just be running along in this quiet desert valley floor or up in an upper valley or something. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this F-18 had come <laughs> rocketing over top. It just whoosh, and they blast and they give me a big wing rock. I, mean, I can actually see one guy waving at me as he oh. went by. Uh, from the cockpit, I still this image in my mind as he went past. And there's a couple times where it'd be a formation; two of them would do it. Yeah, and it was just wow. like this is this is the greatest show on earth, man. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, wow. Anyways, so what funny a stories. Hell of an experience. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some of those people that made you the the athlete and the person that you are. I mean, you started off the triathlon career in, in Moose Jaw. Who were, you know, and are still some of the folks that you were talking earlier about, people like Tony O'Keefe, that you still, you know, really admire in, in multi-sport? Okay, well, I, I would say the, the number one thing for admiration from my perspective, and, and this, this might not have been true when I was 20 or 25 years old, but it certainly is now, is uh, adversity. So the most, the most motivational people uh, I've had in my life with training, I would say one of them primarily is Steve King. He's a good friend. Uh, he and his wife, Jean, amazing people, beautiful people, the, some of the nicest people you'll meet doing wonderful things with uh, Steve with his addictions counseling mm-hmm. in Penticton. Uh, that's what I've always known of him as. A lot of people think he's the voice of Iron Man. Yeah. He is. But to me, primarily, he's he's the savior of a lot of people. And he's also an amazing athlete, which a lot of people don't realize. He's one of the most amazing athletes to see around. Uh, he did Badwater. He came in second when yeah. he was like 60 years old or 58 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done some incredible ultra races and a lot of people just don't know that about Steve yeah. King. Um, you know, he's on the British race walking team. I think, uh, I'm not too sure. If, I don't think he went to the Olympics, but I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but he's an amazing man. And then the next person that, that pops up on my mind, I know some people say sister Madonna Booter and she was a beautiful lady and woman in, in, in her own rights. But, um, for me it was Dick and Rick Hoyt. Ah, yes. They're the epitome of, um, inspiration and, uh, motivation i guess is uh mm-hmm. knowing what what uh dick did for rick and uh and that sort of stuff um so that to me is the epitome there, there are other people out there that have done amazing things a lot of people i've seen that have done the events that have had their own physical challenges uh, some of them just mental challenges some of them are very funny too like ironically funny um in the early years there was a fellow named uh, I just remember his first name was Gerhardt. Can't remember his last name, but but he did the Ironman in cutoff shorts and bare feet. Yeah, and uh, and uh, I just remember seeing video footage of people interviewing him while he's running, and mm-hmm. and, and and you know they're saying, you know, isn't it tough doing what you're doing? You bike the whole way in bare feet, and you're mm-hmm. running the whole marathon in bare feet. And he goes, he looks at them, and he goes, no man. I get energy from every step I take on Mother Earth. Yeah. This is awesome. <laughs> and and it, once again, it was just, you know, that to me, that's, I don't know if it's inspiring, it's funny, but it also, it's indicative of sort of the the kind of the uh, mentality that, that you bring to these things. Um, there's other people. Um, one of my good friends um, from my early days in Moose Jaw, mm. Steve Wallach. Right. Yeah. Um, was um, the world's fastest Clydesdale for many years. He was an amazing athlete, did very well in Penticton and, and other races. 
And, um, you know, I wouldn't say Steve went through as much adversity as other people, but I respected where he came from, from Moose Jaw, mm-hmm. not at the easiest place to become a, a world-level, tra- a world-class triathlete. He did move to Kelowna, where that's where he really started to excel. Uh, he's remained a good friend because we didn't train a lot together. We both knew each other. And we, oh, started, we got okay. together a few times. Yeah, yeah. And we had some fun, we have some funny stories to share um, between the two of us because we just, you know, I was busy doing my thing and mm-hmm. he was busy doing his thing. And we, we'd get together once in a while. But um, I, I can't say I draw inspiration so much from Steve, but he's a great guy. He's done some great things and um, and he continues to. Yeah. So um, just a good friend. Tony, Yeah, Tony O'Keefe. Um, just uh, on, on um, you know, setting goals and, and achieving them. Uh, I don't know anybody in my life who's done that better than Tony O'Keefe. Uh, he's, he's done some amazing things. He was, you know, he was in the military and he got a lot of support for doing these things. Mm-hmm. But you can't take away um, what he achieved yeah. uh, just because he had the support of yeah. the military, um, you know, allowing him to go out and train and do these things. Um, he did some amazing things. So, yeah. yeah. And, and continuing to do so. Um, let's yeah. look back now. I mean, you know, the sport has obviously changed in ways. Has the demographic changed? Maybe. Do you think right now as a 20-year-old, as a you look at the sport of triathlon as it is right now, would have you gone into it? You know, on a very personal level, probably, maybe for different reasons these yeah. days. Um, I've got I've got kids that are of that age group, and some of their friends have taken up triathlon. And I know that both my kids aren't actively doing it, but I know that they're pondering, thinking about oh, okay. it. Okay, yeah. And and when I talk to them as a parent, I just go, "Is it something you want to do? Like, are there are your friends doing it? Do you want to be part of that social group? Because I really, I've really enjoyed the social mix of triathlon. Um, some of my some of my better friends were triathletes. So when we were over in Saudi Arabia, we, we, my, my wife was actually a little put off cause I'd, I'd sworn that I was going <laughs> to do triathlon anymore. I was going to be dad. And I got over there and the first day I was there, some guy says, Hey, there's a triathlon club. You want to be part of it? And my wife wasn't there yet. So uh-huh. I went out to this group and I saw just how much social fun they had. Yeah. And, uh, and when she arrived in Saudi later on with our son, who was just an infant, she I think she came to quickly realize that how how great this was was having a group of expats that just dug getting together on weekends and doing and we had a lot of party social yeah, you know, yeah. get togethers, brunches and stuff together and and uh, and they remained some of our best lifelong friends. Some mm-hmm. of these people. They watched our kids growing up. We were all part of a big group. Some of them live back in Vancouver here, great mm-hmm. friends of ours. Yeah, so so that part, I you know, I say to the kids, this stuff isn't just about setting goals for yourself. It's also do you do you fit in with the group? Is it is it people you want to hang out right, with, yeah. or you know, that that sort of thing? And, and I think if I was twenty years old, that's what I would be looking at right now. Is is uh, am I going to just be going out training on my own the whole time? Am I just beating myself up to try and become a you know super Ironman or yeah. or or triathlete? Or is there a group of people here I want to identify with and I want to hang out with sometimes or go training with and stuff like that and, and make something of life? And I and I always had sort of that. I did a lot of training in my life on my own, I must admit. Um, but but I had lots of friends along the way that, you know, that may not have been part of a formal training group mm-hmm. or whatever, but they're definitely people that I've met every, you know, like every weekend and got together with. Uh, some of our old friends from Saskatoon when I was in Moose Jaw, uh-huh. still really good friends yeah. with Don, Gal- Don Gallo and... Uh, you know, I keep in touch with a few people. Fiona, um, Crip, yeah. yeah, Fiona Crib, um, uh, made um, you know renewed co- uh, contact with her. She was an amazing athlete in her own right, um, and uh, yeah, you know, we just 
in the end, I, I look back and I think I just never got a chance to spend enough time with these people. And I wish I could, um, because some of them are really, really cool, great people. And, and it was all in the end, a lot of it was just about the social side. Yeah. And, and here's yeah. the hell of it, Gerard. Um, I'm part of one of the coaches for our local triathlon club, the Abbotsford Triathlon Club. And although, like you were saying, we didn't necessarily, because in a triathlon club, you get the whole range of speeds and dedications and whatnot. But where the club really came together was at the finish line of all of the races we did together. And, you know, what really sucked over the past 18 months is no celebrations at the finish line, right? With uh, COVID here, no races to do. Uh, I mean, we tried a few, in quotes, parties over the internet on Zoom. Of course, um, that was that was okay. But the social elements, so, so important. And, you know, it's a really uh, a galvanizing thing at the finish line, sharing those war stories from the race course, tales of adversity, overcoming the adversity or, or, or doing what you had to. So that's, uh, that's one of the things as a triathlete, I'm, I'm really looking forward to here in, uh, you know, in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I must admit the humor side of me says, uh, you know, kind of first world problems, really. Yeah. For us, <laughs> you know, that's you know, like to go out and beat ourselves up and stuff and then laugh about it and have fun. Yeah. But it is it is a major part of, I think, the psyche of most of the people that are out there. They, they want to have their own war stories, but yeah. they want to listen to other people's too. <laughs> it's just like yeah. somebody that goes off hike. It's like somebody that goes off hiking every weekend in the mountains and stuff. They'll have their friends, rock climbers and stuff that will yeah. have all their war stories you from what they've you. done. And yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just a different, different flavor. That's mm-hmm. all. Well, we'll uh, we'll wrap up our interview here with our standard Fitspeak question. I don't know if you had an opportunity to hear the end of one of our podcasts. You've probably been asked this question before, but maybe not lately. So, Gerard, if you could be an animal other than a human being, what animal would you be and tell us why? Oh, God. Yeah, no, I've never heard that question oh. before. <laughs> but... The thing that comes to immediate mind, um, jokingly, I'll say a dog. Uh-huh. And the reason the reason is because I've always say guys and dogs are one and the same. <laughs> you, know, you can have a dog drool all over you, and you can have a guy drool all over you. You have the same problems training a guy as you do with a dog. So I think I fit in there really well. And in the end, what you'd get, what I would hope I yeah. would provide to those people would just be nothing but unconditional love. Nah. Okay, I know that sounds sappy, <laughs> but that would that would be that would be the ideal thing. I'd like to come back as a dog because I get to lie, lie around on the couch all day, and when somebody said, "Hey, let's go for a run," I yeah. just have to go for a run. And when I was finished, I'd come back. <clears throat> Not only would they clean up my poo when I was out there <laughs> in the woods, but but they would feed me. Yes, and then I could just go lie down with nothing other than a tail wag and a little bit of love to give them. So yeah, yeah I think I think a dog would fit in there pretty well. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to fit speak with us here on this beautiful day in, in British Columbia. Um, wishing you nothing but success in, in future endeavors, whether those are, you know, giving back to the community, um, future athletic things. Uh, boy, it's, uh, you know, you're still a young fella and you got a, a lot to give. Oh, thanks for that. I, I don't. I don't feel mutually the same, really. To be honest, <laughs> you know, age is age is having its uh, having its way sometimes. But uh, yeah, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate the chance to 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 catch up with you yeah. um, and some some of the others. Uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to uh, you know be able to reach out and catch up with some old friends. There's plenty of them out there that I just don't you know. I ask about every once in a while if I see a connection, and it's. Uh, 
and I and I truly do want to want to get together with old friends, and I do once in a while do bump into them, and it's always great. It's always yeah. a lot of laughter, a lot of smiles, and just the fact that we've made it this yeah. far, right? Yeah.